Hello and welcome to the First Prez Mommy podcast, the show for people on the go who like to stay in tune with the conversations at our church. Today, Pastor Clint Tolbert speaks about 1 Kings 18, 17-39. Elijah confronts Ahab for his disobedience and calls upon God to demonstrate his power as a way of calling the people to repentance and devotion. Let's hear today's message. Let's continue in God's Word. I hope you have it open before you. When I'm done reading, I hope you'll leave it open as we continue to look at God's Word before us. Continuing at verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping, and must be awakened. So they shouted louder, and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying, until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, And also licked up the water in the trench. 
When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And we say again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Don't you just hate it when you are in traffic? Two lanes are merging into one. You are waiting patiently in one lane, and car after car after car passes you until they get to that very spot where they can go no further and force them way, their way in. Don't you just hate that? And don't you want to say, maybe even you do say in the silence of your car, come on, you saw the sign, right? As if they didn't know, right? Well, this morning... And in fact, the whole of the Old Testament is a sign that points to something yet to come. A sign that ought to cause us to align ourselves before that moment when we're forced to. Specifically this morning, we read a sign that points to Jesus in multiple ways. I'll explain the text to you that, so that you know it at, in, in, your, in its own right, but But more than that, what I hope is that you will see in this passage a sign that points to Jesus, who is the one who comes and holds the office of prophet. In addition to that, you will see Jesus, who is the very sacrifice himself that brings salvation and turns our hearts to him. And more than that, you will see in Jesus the very power of God that calls all of us to our knees, remarking the Lord, He is God. So let's look at this passage together. Last week was a pivotal passage as we unfold the story of the Scripture, this passage um, that was hard and grieving, where Israel, God's people, are divided. There is now only one tribe, Judah, that encompasses Jerusalem. These were the people that followed Rehoboam last week. You remember that if you were here. Then there are ten tribes. They follow Jeroboam, and they will be, from this point forward, known as Israel. And they're the ones in view in this story. Now, as we go from account to account through the Old Testament, it is common that we skip over hundreds of years from Sunday to Sunday as we're tracing the thread. But this morning, we actually have only gone a little bit forward. Forty years, give or take, passed between King Jeroboam and King Ahab in view this morning. Ahab ruled 22 years in Israel, and by secular standards, he was a fairly successful king economically, Militarily, you don't rule for 22 years without some success, but, but his fault lied in the way he led the people spiritually. To see that, I'd invite you to just turn a couple of chapters backwards. If, if indeed you are uh, opened your Bible and have it open before you still, it shouldn't be hard to get to 1 Kings chapter 16. Beginning at verse 30, here's what it says. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. 
He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. You remember those sins last year? Oh, it's too hard, or last week. It's too hard for you to go to Jerusalem. We'll set up two altars here. Remember Dan and Bethel, all that? Ahab thought that was trivial. That's child's play, right? He also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. This guy's a bad dude. (laughs) And as a result of his disobedience, God, through his prophet Elijah, announces a drought and a famine that goes on for three years. The, The people are starving Ahab is angry, and as a result, he's blaming Elijah and looking for him to kill him. That's the context for our passage. That's where we'll begin to see not just Elijah, but Jesus, who, I want you to notice first, is the prophet who brings trouble. Did you notice Ahab's words to Elijah, verse 17? There you are, you troubler of Israel. Now, think about it based on what I just told you. Who's the real troubler in Israel? Right, Ahab, Ahab himself. Ahab's the one who has led the people astray. Ahab's the one who has invited all the trouble that that Israel is now enduring. And yet, when the prophet comes, Ahab turns things upside down and says, there you are, you troubler. I want you to think about what that must have felt like for Elijah. What's it feel like to have the finger pointed at you to be accused? What's it feel like to stand all by yourself? This, This passage puts before us 450 prophets or priests of Baal and just Elijah. What's it feel like with everyone else looking on, wondering what's going to happen? You ever been in a moment like this where you just feel like you're all by yourself and you are being accused of causing trouble? Even as you hold in your heart this certainty that, no, 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 I'm just just trying to do what's right. You've been in moments like that. Maybe it was in your teenage years where your friends were doing something they ought not do. Maybe picking on another kid and you're standing there going, this isn't right, I should say something, but maybe it's in the office. You notice your boss acting unethically. You think, I ought to to say something, but... Maybe it's in social situations. You know, if I say something, they're just going to say, ah, you're so self-righteous. That's what Elijah may have been feeling in this moment. As I meditated on this, I thought about the, the warning offered by Martin Niemöller. You may not know that name, but I bet you remember his warning. Martin Niemöller was a pastor 
who lived in Germany in the 1930s. He was a Lutheran pastor. And early on, as the Nazi regime gained power, he was a little bit sympathetic to some of their talking points. But, but when Adolf Hitler came to power and when he began to interfere with the workings of the Protestant church, Niemöller woke up and went, whoa. But it was too late. And it was he who wrote the ominous statement that may be familiar to you. He wrote, first they came for the socialists. But I did not speak out because I wasn't a socialist. And then they came to the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I'm not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out. Because I'm not a Jew. And then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak for me. And Niemöller spent the next eight years in Nazi prisons or concentration camps. There is a temptation. Whenever we feel like we know what's right, but everyone else is doing the opposite. There is this temptation to just go along and keep our mouth shut. But Elijah didn't do that. And Jesus doesn't do that. For Jesus stands in the role of the prophet, both in the first century and still today in our lives. You know, as we're tracing our way through the Old Testament, recognize this, that God established three different offices, all of which are meant to help uh, mediate a relationship between God and his people. So those offices are prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus, in his person, fulfilled all three offices. When we look at a prophet in the Old Testament, we ought to look forward and recognize, oh, Jesus is the great prophet. When we see a king, we go, oh, Jesus is the true king. When we see the priest, Hebrews reminds us he is our great high priest. And so when we see Elijah standing here, we recognize Jesus, who is also a troubler in his day and in ours. Let me show you what I'm talking about. And let me, we'll look at a passage from Luke chapter 16. We'll pull it up here in a moment. But first paint it in your mind and, and, and recognize it's not unlike what we see with Elijah and Ahab. As Elijah stands with a crowd on the top of Mount Carmel, so too does Jesus stand at the top of a mountain. And he preaches to a crowd. Some in the crowd are devoted to him, but there are others who despise him. Most, as was true during Elijah's day, just don't know what to make of it all. They're entertaining multiple opinions, trying to figure out who's right and who is God. The scene continues in Luke chapter 16. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount you might be familiar with. Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. 
So if you have been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either of you will either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Do you see there the echoes of Elijah? I was struggling to read, but it was before you. I'm sure you could see it for yourself. The echoes of Elijah who, who speak prophetically, pointedly, accusingly at those who were gathered around. Some in Jesus' day were the Pharisees. We're told they loved money, and so he points his finger right at them. And they will eventually kill him for it. Jesus, yes, is the Prince of Peace, but he is also the prophet who brings trouble. Not just to them, but, but to us. As we think about this scene on the top of Mount Carmel, and recognize that the people are called away from Yahweh to the worship of the god Baal, we ought to wonder to ourselves what God is calling me, what God competes for my heart. Any thoughts about that? I picked this passage because I think the, the, the strongest God there in the first century remains the strongest today, at least in America. Is it not the God of money or materialism? Does that God not call for our allegiance, calling us away from God? At least does in my life. I was thinking about it a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember we had Stephen from Uganda was sharing his story on behalf of Compassion International? The encouragement to all of us was to, to consider whether God would have us sponsor a child. Well, our family already sponsors multiple children, and so though there was a call to consider that, if I'm honest, I really didn't consider it at all. And then as I was thinking about this passage, it occurred to me, you know, every time my wife or my children or just I myself think, hey, it'd be nice to go out to dinner, I consider that call with great enthusiasm. <laughs> I, I just looked at myself and went, how come I'll wrestle with the invitation to help the poor, to provide a meal to this child who, who is going without anything close to what I have. I, I'll consider that and go, ah, I, I'm doing enough. And yet, whenever someone says, hey, let's go out to eat, I'm ready to go. Why is that? Well, I'm sure you're nothing like me, but let me just tell you my heart. It's because my heart is still divided. 
It's because there's still a war in my heart that though I claim Jesus, I still tend towards the worship of money or the things that money can provide. And I need and I want Jesus to be the troubler of my soul, to speak up through his word and spirit and say to Clint, hey, do you notice this? It's not right. It's not good. Not if you claim me. We all need that, don't we? Not just with money, with all sorts of things. Think about the social issues of the day. Thoughts about immigration. As we try to think through this war that's going on, both of them. Most of us will go vote this week. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. But I will say something that I hope will trouble some of you. If you go into that voting booth and mindlessly align yourself with one party, thinking that, oh, the Democratic Party, that represents me, or the Republican Party, that represents me. If you align yourself with one party without thought, you are not aligned with Jesus. For there are aspects of the Democratic Party that look a little bit more like the values of Jesus in those ways. And there are aspects of the Republican Party that look a little bit more like Jesus in that way. And the call of the follower of Jesus is to think it through and say, oh, Lord, would you lead? Help me. We need him to trouble us, don't we? Oh, come on. Remember when Stephen was here, you gave him a little amen, right? Right? We need that. We need that. We need Jesus to accuse us. But, but, this passage also helps us recognize he's not simply the accuser, but then is the one who embodies the sacrifice that saves. Let's consider that as we look at the passage again. Let me paint it in your mind's eye, or you can look at it in the text. There are 400 prophets of Baal. They are there with Elijah. There is a contest, and every privilege, every favor, home court advantage, if you will, is given to the prophets of Baal. They go first, and they begin to call on their God. And there's nothing. About noon, Elijah says, I'm going to have some fun with this. Now, you remember Larry Bird? Kids didn't remember Larry Bird this morning, but we remember Larry Bird, right? There's nobody who trash-talked like Larry Bird. But Larry Bird had nothing on Elijah. (laughs) Elijah begins to taunt them. He says, verse 27, hey, come on, shout louder. The text is translated because maybe he's busy or turned aside. They're just trying to be kosher there. The Hebrew actually is a euphemism for he might be in the bathroom and can't hear you. That's trash talking. Now, most importantly, he calls out the, the truth of what he's trying to lead people to see. He says, surely he is a God. And they begin to whip themselves blood all over the place because that's how they'd been taught but evening comes and there's nothing nothing finally Elijah has had enough and he calls the people to himself and again if you're putting yourself in the scene as you should with every narrative 
Put yourself in the crowd, because that's who you are, the audience. They've been watching the prophets of Baal. It's been entertaining and gross and moving and ugh, but nothing's happened. But Elijah says, enough, come here. And so you walk over, and you wonder what's he going to do. He begins to rebuild this altar that is in shambles. He takes 12 stones, the stones of Israel. Not 10 stones, mind you, 12, drawing to their memory this God who had once called this now divided nation. They dig a trench, place the bowl, and then he calls for four jars of water, pour it over the sacrifice. Does it once, pours over again, does it twice, third time, drench that thing with how many jars of water? Twelve. Got some math majors in here. <laughs> again, drawing to mind the promise of God to the people of Israel. And then he says, look at verse 36 and 37. And this is important. God, let it be known that you are God. It's not about Elijah's fame. It's not about him at all. Let him know that you are God and you are turning their hearts back to you again. Fire fell from heaven and the hearts of the people turned. Friends, in this, you should see Jesus who is not just the prophet who points out what we do wrong, but is also the very sacrifice in the middle of the fire that provides the means by which our heart is turned and our soul is saved. Jesus is that sacrifice. There are echoes here of the centurion we're told about in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that those who were gathered around the cross on that fateful night when Jesus died looked and said, surely he was the Son of God, and their hearts were turned. What happens when you look at the cross? What happens when you consider the sacrifice of our Lord? What happens when you remember your own sin, your own rebellion, when you remember what is deserved because of your disobedience? Do you ever think about that what you deserve and what I deserve is nothing but hell itself? And yet Jesus, being the sacrifice, makes provision for eternal life in our soul. May it be never the case that we look at the cross and say, eh, that's nice. May it be that which turns our heart over and over and over again. For he's the prophet, he's the sacrifice, and, last note, he's the very power of God present in this moment. Verse 39, do you see it? When the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, 
Oh my goodness. The Lord, He is God. Forget Baal. The Lord, He's God. It's Jesus who shows up as the power and helps the people turn back to Him. I wonder as we look at this passage, we might ask, hey, do, is there a sign today? Like, what, does God want us to know him? I, I would hope in this passage you would recognize that our God is not one who hides. He's not one who has said, I have shown up for these people over and over and over again to heck with them. He is a God who says, I want them to know me. I want them to know me. I want them to know me. And I'm going to do everything I can that they would know me. Many of you are here and you believe, kind of. (laughs) You wonder. You struggle. Do you know that God wants you to know him? Do you know that if you prayed and said, God, I'm, I want to know you, I want to believe in you, I want to trust you, but I'm struggling, would you help me? Would you show me? Do you know that God wants to answer a prayer like that? If it's prayed honestly and with a genuineness of spirit. Often when I teach people to walk with Christ, we spend some time in prayer, and I, and I, I do something that I'll admit is a little bit dangerous. Based in this sentiment, I suggest to them, hey, God wants to prove himself to you. And so as you pray, let's pray very specifically so that you can see God answer your prayer and recognize that he is God. So a couple of years ago, somebody in this congregation, I'll not share more, financial planner, but it's not Dan Skies over here, right? Said, well... I don't know, I'm struggling in business, and my manager says I have to get this dollar amount of business, or there's going to be some pretty significant consequences. I said, well, let's pray for that. So he began to pray for that. Would you believe he got that exact dollar amount from one phone call from a lady who said, hey, I'd like to invest. Now, my next words were, praise me to God. This is not a business strategy, right? Praise be to God who wants to reveal himself to you and now lead you to trust him where you cannot see. He wants to do that with you too. Jesus is the very power of God. And he wants us to know him. He reveals himself in those ways. I believe it. But most fully, he's revealed in the empty cross and in the resurrection. We remember Thomas. Remember Thomas? Jesus had risen. Some had seen him. They come back and tell Thomas. He goes, "Ah, not unless I can touch him. Well, I believe. Jesus comes and says, hey, Thomas, why don't you put your hand here? Why don't you put your fingers here? And echoing the words 
of those gathered with Elijah on the mountain, Thomas says, my Lord, my God. Jesus responds, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who, having not seen, will still believe. It's those words that would have echoed into the mind of the Apostle Paul, who helps us to recognize the power of God in Jesus Christ, a power entrusted to all of us. When he said, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not. I'll stand here like Elijah, one against many. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, namely for every. That's Jesus. Friends, as we work our way through the Old Testament, may we see Jesus like a sign on a road calling us to merge. May we see Jesus, the one who is the prophet, saying to us, that isn't right. May we invite that into our lives. May we see Jesus, the sacrifice who makes the way for our salvation even when we are accused. And may we see Jesus, who is himself, the very power of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, would you help us to see you in this passage, in the songs that we sing, in the embrace we share with one another in true worship. Would you help us to see you, especially in this sacrament we're about to share? Meet us, Lord, in power, in the bread and in the cup. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed our first Prez Mommy podcast. Learn more about our church at our website, firstpresmommy.org. Have a great week.